and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, September 30th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. It is feeling like uh, the beginning of fall. And Hmm. later today, uh, are both of you going to head out to the Broadway flea market, the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS uh, flea market? Uh, yes, uh, certainly because uh, the Theatre World Awards, uh, with which I'm associated, takes a table every year. So uh, we're looking forward to seeing people uh, old and new, <laughs> young and old. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter, you you, you are, uh, are, are, do you find little nuggets there, things that you like, oh my goodness, I have to have that, or have you seen it all? Uh, a little of both, actually. Every now and then there's something that uh, I say, oh, I never got that. So uh, that's the wonderful thing about these flea markets. Um, I also like looking at the faces of the people searching through things. Uh, there's such intensity, and I understand that intensity entirely. So uh, so that's part of the fun of it, too. Uh, I, I never head to the Theatre World table until I've made a tour of the entire province ah, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> to see if, indeed, there's something uh, I do want to get. But, uh, but, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience all around uh, because you're in the middle of people who care about this as much as you do. And some people call it a uh, high school reunion of sorts. It is. It really is. Yeah. Michael, what are your feelings on this? Do you uh, go? Do you attend this? Oh, yeah. I always go at least for part of it. And they certainly have – they seem to have a lovely day for it. Yeah. 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 Very Remember the lucky. time it rained and we had to go into uh, Roseland. God rest its soul. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty uh, dank. But anyway. that was that was awful. But I think that was the last time I was in Roseland. So yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Mm. yeah sure, sure. Yeah. So all right. So uh, hopefully next week we can have some stories of uh, listeners who said hello to us at the flea market. I'm going to try to get down there as well. I'm seeing the nap this afternoon, so I'm going to try to get into the city early. And uh, stop by the flea market. Uh, So first up in the reviews, speaking of the nap, uh, Peter, you got a chance to see the nap. So tell us about this new Broadway play. God, you know, what a title. uh, Because you know people are going to say, you know, I took a nap at the nap. I mean, it it just – and it's an easy play to take a nap at, frankly. And I'm not sure that if you do take a nap that you're going to miss very much that you wouldn't expect to have happen. Um, it, it does deal with snooker, which is, um, the British uh, version of pool, I guess we can say. And, um, there's an enormous table, uh, on the stage. And I thought for a while, wow, I mean, are they really going to play and we're just going to have to watch them, um, shoot these balls? Um, it, we should be in the balcony if this is going to happen. Well, there are projections, uh, when the game actually, um, goes full force, and they've actually had to hire somebody who really knows how to play this game because um, he's uh, an established champion. And But we're supposed to be rooting for Dylan. 
uh, who's very nicely played by an actor named Ben Schnetzer. Um, and he, he's uh, an up-and-coming kid. And it's, so it's one of those stories, you know, is the up-and-coming, is the David going to beat Goliath? That's what it really comes down to. Um, there is a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, other stuff along the way, many complications, including a transsexual uh, mobster. You don't get one of those every day, I'll grant you. And that is very, very, very well played by Alexandra Billings. Now, granted, it's not an amazingly demanding role, but um, Alexandra Billings gets every bit of it in playing a character named, I'm not kidding here, I mean, this is the name, what do you want from me? Um, Waxy Bush. All right, that's not the strangest name because um, Bahavish Patel plays a character named Mohammed but with two T's. So, um, so there's uh, almost sounds like a restoration comedy from here to there, but, but all things considered, um, Daniel Sullivan did a nice job of directing, but I don't, I don't think there's very much of this play that, um, that really surprised me. Even the first act ending, which is supposed to be tremendously surprising. I had a feeling was going to go in the direction it went. And for that matter, I had a feeling it was going to go into a direction after that, that you wouldn't expect, but I did expect. So, um, so I found this a pretty ordinary, um, experience and I'll tell you, Manhattan Theater Club, which is the producers here, um, Lynn Meadow and Barry Grove, certainly spend money on this one. Um, it's a big cast, comparatively speaking, for a play these days. Two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven. That's a lot for a play these days. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I wish I could be more enthusiastic, but um, I found it uh, one of those two and a half stars ordinary shows that didn't um, excite me in any way. And at the end of it, uh, obviously, if we're dealing with two people, one has to win and one has to lose. And the way um, the loser loses struck me as a little too convenient. And the way the winner won struck me as too convenient, too. So, so I, 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 yeah, that's it for me with the nap. Okay. So uh, that is the nap. And uh, Michael and I will see this uh, coming up soon. And we'll report back to you on this. Next up, we have uh, Michael and I got a chance to see Bernhard Hamlet. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on that? Sure. This is a new play by, and I'm sorry, I meant to look up <laughs> pronunciation. I didn't get a chance. Teresa Rebeck or Rebeck? R E B E C K. And it is about the great legendary, uh, that word is used so often uh, by, by many of us to describe great theater artists, but it is beyond question to say that Sarah Bernhardt was one of the legendary actresses of theater history. She was a French actress of the late 19th and uh, early 20th centuries. And this play centers around, uh, rather specifically around the fact that she is preparing to play the title role in Hamlet. Uh, which was quite unusual, uh, quite unusual, uh, to say the least. I, I, I'm not sure she was the very first, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised, uh, woman to take on this, what is considered by many to be the one of the most challenging and, and rewarding and difficult roles in the canon, um, the Shakespeare canon or, or in the whole theatrical canon. Um, this uh, the star of this production is Janet McTeer, a, a really great actress who has triumphed before in 
several things, most notably in a, in a production of A Dollhouse, which remains uh, to this day the the best production of that show I have ever seen, that play I have ever seen, and the best performance of, of that role of Nora. Um, also in this Roundabout Theatre Company production are Dylan Baker and Jason Butler-Harner, uh, as well as Matthew Saldivar, Nick Westrate, Tony Carlin, Ido Aguilar, Brittany Bradford, Aaron costa Granis and Trini Sandoval. And I'm sorry, um, I just think I said that. uh, uh, Wait, uh, no, yeah, I mean, that is the cast list. Um, And it's directed by Moritz von Stuppelnagel. And I uh, went into this thinking, what a fascinating subject. Uh, I don't know that much about Sarah Bernhardt. I do know a little bit, uh, but she obviously is a is a major, major, major figure in theater history. And it sounded like uh, that the fact that the focus was going to be on her playing the male role of Hamlet was going to lead to all kinds of interesting situations. Um, It seems to me that there, there are some very basic major flaws in this, in this play. I'm sorry to say, Uh, first of all, um, a major plot point, uh, really they spend quite a bit of time on this is that uh bernhardt as as we see her in this play is involved romantically with the writer edmond rostand who would go on to write cyrano de bergerac and attain his own uh, immortality for that um and what she wants in in this case is to have rostand rewrite hamlet um, for her, uh, because she wants him to take the poetry out of Shakespeare because she doesn't like it. Um, now this, uh, this, um, may sound really interesting and intriguing, but again, there's a basic problem because we have to bear in mind that she would be performing Hamlet in French, uh, for the audiences in France. And, uh, so therefore, the uh, we're talking about a translation, and uh, I do not know for sure, but I don't think that the translations of Shakespeare in other languages were able to attempt to uh, retain the poetry, quote unquote. Also, there is a specific reference to uh, what she wants removed, among among other things, are the iams. The iams, as an iambic pentameter, it's frequently pentameter. Uh, that is the uh, the poetry in the sense that there's the rhythm to the lines that are iams. And for example, uh, to be or not to be, that is the quest. <laughs> Uh, if if you were going to do that, but the but first of all, um, no one reads those lines that way to begin with. So that's that's first of all. Second of all, she would be doing it in French. And thirdly, I have always been taught, uh, have studied French for for many years, that that French is not a language that is stressed. It is not meant uh, to have those accents and stresses uh, and then uh, unaccented syllables in the way that, for example, English is. So this whole – all of the time that they spend on this specific subject seems to me makes absolutely no sense at all. And I don't know why uh, Teresa Rebic 
chose to focus on it if it's going to be that confusing uh, to to anyone who thinks about it for a few minutes and realizes that we're not talking about an English rewrite. We're talking about a, a translation into French. That's first of all. Then um, there there was another thing that irked me terribly. Of course, this uh, play tries to make points about female empowerment and and uh, a woman having the, the the opportunity to play a great male role. Um, but uh, at one point uh, in Act Two, it, it's so obviously built up to. Um, Sarah is talking and she's becoming very, very adamant. And she says uh, that she has hated playing the ingenue uh, in in her career so many times. And she says uh, – she I believe she phrases it, it's beneath me to play the ingenue. It's beneath all women. Now, first of all, <laughs> I looked through a list of the roles that she played and I do not think that that any or, or, or very few of them would be classified as a traditional ingenue. She, she was famous for such roles as Marguerite in La Dame au Camélia, also known as Camille. Uh, she, she was famous as Tosca in the original play version of, of that play by Sardou, which went on to become a, the basis of a opera by Puccini. Uh, Fedora was another one of her major roles. And, she says um, – she talks uh, – Bernhardt does in, in this play about how she had played Ophelia, and I would say that even that is not a, a typical ingenue. I, the, the definition of which, according to the, the dictionary that I used, is a – an innocent or unsophisticated young woman, especially in a play or film. Um, so – I don't think any of those roles really qualify in that regard. And also, even if they did, what is wrong with that? I mean, uh, if, if a character needs to be that type of character, uh, then that's that that's what the play requires. And there are innocent, unsophisticated young women. There are also innocent, unsophisticated young men. And those roles used to be called juveniles. So I don't um, I, I, I don't know what that point was supposed to be. I think it was extremely muddled and confused. It was obviously, as I say, built up to in such a way that it got applause from the audience when Janet McTeer said it, it's beneath all women to play ingenues. But I, I think it's a, a silly and nonsensical point and really counterproductive. So I, I, I can't imagine what what she was thinking there in terms of the reality of the types of roles that Sarah Bernhard played. Um, uh, uh, so this play was kind of a mess for me. Uh, I, I like the first act a lot better than the second act because that's when most of the flaws started to come into play. Um, it's a handsome production at the, uh, at the American Airlines Theater by the Roundabout Theater Company. Um, but And it's, it's really great to see Janet McTeer back on stage. But, uh, but I have to say even there, I noticed that um, – her performance was very, very – I want to almost say busy. Her hands are almost constantly moving, fluttering, gesturing. Her body is almost never at rest. She never does um, – in this performance or rarely the kind of acting where she really is more still and very focused. And I think it would have been good if she had done more of that or some of that as uh, a respite from all the busyness and all the gesturing. Okay, so um, 
I didn't think about it. All those points that Michael made uh, as hard as Michael had made made them, but they make total sense to me. Uh, I really enjoyed this production. It was great to see Janet McTeer back on stage. Um, And uh, it was very interesting. Uh, My my wife was concerned that she's not a scholar of Hamlet. She kind of knows it passingly, and she was concerned that she was not going to understand or know this show. Uh, but I don't think that you really needed, you know, certainly if you knew the text of Hamlet, you would get some of the more uh, referential jokes in there. But you didn't need to know this is a play about putting on a production of Hamlet. It's not actually Hamlet itself. Um, and I, one of the things that I thought was uh, going to work against it uh, for some people after the fact is that it is a... Uh, seemingly historical piece that uses in the vernacular of today uh, and is, you know, everybody seems to be in the past, but looking and sounding like they're in the present. Uh, It didn't bother me as much, but I could see other people being hung up on, on that type of a thing. I thought the cast was, uh, was very, very good. As I mentioned, Janet McTeer really, uh, it's great to see her back on stage, and I immediately thought to myself that um, that I thought that she would uh, be likely to get some sort of uh, nomination out of this. What, Michael, do you think she's going to be able to pull off a nomination on this? Oh, I would suspect so. Yes, I. Uh, I also should mention I, I think that the direction was uh, probably contributed to the. Uh, to the well, to what I saw as the, that flaw in her performance, because there was a lot of, um, I thought, uh, very broad acting, including from Jason Butler Harner and several of the other people in the cast. But uh, so Moritz von Stuppelnagel might have had a lot to do with that. But Janet McTeer, uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, she's really great. Oh, it's yeah, it's no. really, really great to see her on stage. I just did notice that. Uh, uh, some moments, some moments of repose and and quiet focus, I thought might have been, uh, might have really kind of helped uh, to to give a fuller picture of this person. No, absolutely, and especially the point you made about iambic pentameter and the, the rhyming and all the other things like that uh, certainly would not have come into play in a translated translated production into French as this was in Paris. Uh, so yeah, and again, sir, I, I, yeah. you know, I think it's, I'm sorry, it's, it's just, I don't think it's a minor point. I, I mean, for a, a play to get to Broadway that, that's built around a, a premise that doesn't make any sense, I, I, I don't get it, especially since, uh, you know, we're, we're not sure how completely accurate uh that it is as far as the taking the poetry out of mm-hmm. Shakespeare part of it and, and the I am's thing. Oh, and uh, what you said about the vernacular was interesting because it's also interesting to note that um, it seems like pretty much across the board, ex- with the possible exception of Dylan Baker, that everyone uh, in this company is doing um, a uh, a very – quite a thick British accent and, and – mm. I, we know for a fact that that several of the actors are not British, including Jason Butler Harner. Um, 
Uh, Matthew Saldivar does another type of accent, uh, but everyone else, yeah. That so I, I guess that was done to try to um, to get some uh, stylistic uh, consistency and 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 to defer in a way to Janet McTeer, who is British. But um, yeah, your point is is well taken about the the type of speech. Um, so Paxton Whitehead was in this production oh, yeah, during, right. during rehearsal and uh, left uh, uh, reportedly due to health reasons. Yes. Uh, who did he replace? I don't recall. He was, well, who replaced uh, him? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Tony Carlin, it looks like. Uh, that's what IBDB says. Tony, Tony Carlin, who played Lewis, uh, replaced Paxton Whitehead. So uh, I, I was interested about the accents as well. And I'm interested to see if they threw out the accents because they're supposed to be in 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 French, but performing <laughs> in English, and so the accents don't even really matter. Or if they made everybody do a typical uh, caricature French accent speaking English, it would have been over the top and ridiculous. Or oh yeah, yeah, you know yeah. <laughs> that type of thing. So. I had a friend that uh, pointed out to me that she was she really preferred the London cast of Les Miserables when it first uh, appeared on the scene in the nineties or eighties eighties in the eighties because she preferred the London cast because their English accents were so much better. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I I. All you can do is say, yeah, yeah, you're right, and shake your head and move on. Well, uh, in, so. <laughs> but, but but in an odd way, I have to admit, I, it's it's very weird. But I think that uh, that some of us Americans, uh, when we are seeing actors portray Europeans, uh, somehow it can seem more natural for them to have British accents than to have flat American accents, which can really, really take you out of the uh, – the milieu they're trying to create, if it's French, for example, or or or, or you know even German, I suppose. Uh, so that that's uh, anyway. That's how I feel. I don't I don't know why that is, but <laughs> but well, uh, it's, uh, it's yes. funny because in fifties um, biblical movies, and there were a slew of them back then. You yes. know, all the all the Romans spoke with British accents, you know, to indicate how high class they were. <laughs> I was just going to say that Americans generally consider people with accents smarter. Sure, sure, sure. British accents, anyway. British accents, that's true. Yeah. Mm. All right. So uh, that is Bernard Bernard Hamlet at the American Airlines Theater. It's playing through November 11th. Peter's going to see it in the next upcoming weeks, and we'll talk about it again after Peter sees it. But until then, Peter, you got up to the Westchester Broadway Theater in Elmsford, New York, which uh, for those people who don't know Westchester, it's the county just above the Bronx in uh, just above New York City, probably 30, 45 minutes away from New York City to see Yestin Akapet's Phantom. So tell us about this. Yeah, uh, this was a show that got done a great deal in the 90s, probably because Phantom of the Opera was so, so uh, popular then, and um, you couldn't do it, and you just can't do it now, really. Uh, uh, there's probably a school edition, but not much more than that. So uh, for people who wanted a Phantom fix, they uh, took on the one that Maury Estin uh, and Arthur Coppett wrote some years uh, earlier. I I can't say I really remember. Um, I 
if memory serves, and it may not serve, this was a case that they were writing it around the same time Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, was writing his, uh, and um, they just kept going uh, despite the fact that it didn't look good for them. But they did get plenty of regional productions, <clears throat> especially one at the Paper Mill Playhouse in 1993 that would truly knock your eyes out. Um, so, But here it is at the Westchester Broadway Theater, um, which is a dinner theater, by the way. And um, a, a very nice and competent meal you get before the show. But the thing is um, that this has been tremendously popular for this theater. Um, they do it every now and then because people just keep saying, hey, can we see that phantom again? Now, I know people who have done this show who say um, that uh, when they come off the stage door, people are saying, how come you didn't sing music of the night? Um, so there is a, 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 a confusion there, and uh, people sometimes don't know that they're not seeing the genuine phantom of the opera, so to speak. So um, so be forewarned, I guess um, our audience is um, aware that this is a different show entirely. Well. It's a different show entirely, too, in terms of plot. Um, for one thing, the Phantom kills right away. I mean, right away. I mean, this is a nasty guy. No question about it. We also get some background on um, how the Phantom came to be, how he was born, why he was disfigured. So these are things that come up here that uh, certainly don't come up in the um, more famous version. I have to say, you know, I I often say that I have seen um, probably 80 to 90 percent of the Broadway musicals for the almost um, – <laughs> long now before it's 60 years so um but i have to say that matthew billman who played the phantom has one of the best voices i have ever heard on the musical theater stage uh, i i was and you know voices aren't that important to me because i came in during the henry higgins era and there were so many non-singers who were singing on cast albums and in shows that uh, i became accustomed to hearing um voices that were expressive and certainly knew how to deal with the lyrics and gave them meaning but um glorious voices weren't really important when i was came in and so it's something i don't really pay that much attention to but i had to hear because i truly believe this matthew billman um is astonishing at um at singing and um not far behind him um is kayleen seidel that's s-e-i-d-l who plays christine uh, very nicely now the show starts with her being essentially a song plugger now this was something we heard that george gershwin did um in his early years that he used to sit at the piano and um in stores and play current songs and people would say oh I, I have to have that I, let me have that sheet music and um the, what christine does is go around and sing the latest songs and people buy sheet music because after all this is when sheet music was king there were no recordings at this time so this is how people got their music and um and and that's what happened so that's what she's doing and she catches the eye of philippe not raul but philippe Okay, keep that in mind. Um, and he um, is very much into her. Uh, he's a count, by the way, um, played by Larry Luck and played very nicely by Larry Luck. Uh, and uh, there's no question that he's interested in her for more than her voice. And that's going to be a complication as time goes on. We also get, meet Gerard Carrier, wonderfully played by James Van Truren, uh, who has a secret. Uh, they often say that it's a good thing to have your characters have secrets. Well, he certainly has one. So um, now you, you can't help thinking while you're watching this, if there were no Andrew Lloyd Webber show, would this have been the Phantom that we uh, would have the same success as Phantom? I don't think so. It's too traditionally book musical. And um, there are two glorious songs, um, one um, called Home, 
that Christine sings with the Phantom, and another one, My True Love, which Christine sings to the Phantom. Uh, beautiful, beautiful songs. And we know that Mari Eston really writes wonderful uh, music, though I do find that the song, Whoever who could ever have dreamed up you uh, that Philippe sings to Christine is uh, strangely out of period to me and almost um, sounds like a Charles Strauss, or Jerry Herman uh, song with that bouncy feeling, but, uh, but it's, it's fine music, but I, I don't know if this would have taken the city by storm had it been the only phantom of the opera. Still, if you're curious about this, it's a terrific production. And as James points out, it's not that far away. And um, you'll also get a chance to see Sandy Rosenberg, uh, who plays Carlotta, and really has a, a wonderful time and gives us a wonderful time as this vain, glorious, um, uh, and very sinister and um, not above uh, sabotaging what's going on here. Uh, that's that's a little more pointed here than it is in the uh, Lloyd Webber version. So uh, <laughs> she's terrific fun. And uh, all in all, um, if, if you're curious, it is worth the trip. It certainly is um, because uh, the the costumes are uh, are really, really quite nice and as, as they would have to be in a show like this. So um, Keith Nielsen um, either took them out of the warehouse or designed them himself, but they're really quite nice. And um, it's a thrust stage. And uh, even though you're sitting at tables um, <laughs> on raised levels um, to the back wall, I don't think the back wall, um, which is high up, um, is that far away from the action. So I do believe that uh, going to the Westchester Broadway Theater in Elmsford, New York, is worth a trip, especially now. Peter, it's interesting what you say. Of course, uh, there has been a lot of confusion in the past between the Andrew Lloyd Webber Phantom and the Eston Coppett Phantom, uh, and uh, which has buoyed the Eston Coppett Phantom uh, across uh, many different productions. But I wonder, uh, was the Phantom production, uh, the Phantom of the Opera, Angela Webber's Phantom of the Opera, uh, do you think that that kind of rode on the coattails of Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita and Cats to... Well, at that point in time, sure, anybody was interested in what Andrew Lloyd Webber was going to do next, even if you hated him, and people um, certainly did by that point in time, because Cats was very much resented as um, a, a frivolous show that uh, didn't have the uh, heavyweight feeling that so many long-run musicals were expected to have. So uh, I, I do think, though, that um, whatever he was doing was going to be in, in the public eye. Uh, <laughs> he'd stick it in your eye. But um, I've often said that um, I really believe the last time that, that the general uh, theater-going, intensely theater-going audience really was crazy for Lloyd Webber was um, Avita, And then with Cats, um, a lot of people had a bit of resentment uh, that it wasn't uh, much more of a show and it was just a review and uh, all that goes with that. And after that, the, the backlash started, and especially because he was coming phenomenally rich and because it was threatening uh, Chorus Line and, of course, did overtake it as the longest-running musical. So um, there has been uh, resentment. I don't think it's completely gone away, frankly, um, and I, I, I'd be surprised maybe we wanted to argue with that to any degree that uh, it has gone away, that uh, there's still um, uh, almost like a, a jokey feeling about what Andrew Lloyd Webber is or has become. 
but uh, <laughs> some of these things are really quite marvelous. And I think uh, Old Deuteronomy in Cats, by the way, is a great song. And uh, to plunk out that tune on a piano and uh, put it together is, is, is one of the marvels of musical theater as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I imagine I'll get a lot of static on that. But um, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, we all do. We, uh, whatever we say, uh, there's certainly people who think that uh, – I, I was thinking of Peter Marx's lead for Victor Victoria when Raquel Welsh came in. Hmm. I remember she's supposed to be a man. And so his um, his lead was, oh, come on. You know, and I know <laughs> people will say that for uh, my feelings about old Deuteronomy, but uh, still, uh, I'll stand by it. And uh, so, yeah, frankly, uh, I do feel that I would prefer Andrew Lloyd Webber scores to many of the scores that uh, are non-scores um, and uh, jukebox musicals that have cropped up in the last few years. I think um, in the in the 80s, when he was producing um, these scores, that we were lucky we didn't know it comparatively speaking <laughs> yeah but um just you know significantly the uh uh let's bear in mind that uh Evita was the last show that lloyd Webber wrote with tim rice right yeah and i i've always thought uh that 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 was probably the reason that that's the last of his shows that i really liked i i think that uh and i think i've said this that even though tim rice had his flaws as a librettist and lyricist that he did much better work than the people that Lloyd Webber has worked with since then. And uh, so I think it's not a coincidence <laughs> that if, if that is true, what you, would you say, Peter? That's that fair. That still, That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, did you get over to the Met and see Phantom of the Opera recently? <laughs> No, I wonder if it will ever get to the point where they do anything like that. Probably not. I think 54 Below should have a retrospective side-by-side, -side, Phantom of the <laughs> Opera and La Boheme, you know? <laughs> well, no, I, I did want to mention, because I, I have to make sure that our listeners know about this, the Met now has $25 rush tickets. I think they've had them for um, a few seasons now. I'm not sure exactly when it started. Uh Day of each performance, any unsold ticket, any unsold ticket is available at uh, $25, and uh, you can only get them online. I think initially you could get them at the box office or on the phone also. Now it's only online, uh, so just be prepared to go on, uh, uh, online uh, uh, starting at noon on the day of the night that you want to go, and you uh, – and I don't – I think um, uh, unless I wasn't doing it right, I don't think you can pick your seat. You just have to give what they uh, take what they give you. But it is twenty five dollars. And not only that, it's twenty five dollars without any extra fees uh, for, in my case, a ticket that would normally have cost one hundred and fifteen dollars. But I, I you know, you can get one that's even higher price than that normally for $25 to hear a, uh, you know, an 80 piece orchestra and a hundred voice chorus, uh, and, and, and see them in these magnificent productions in one of the greatest opera houses in the world. The, uh, I remember that, uh, Peter, uh, mentioned when he went to see the Merry Widow at the Met that he was disappointed at the lack of spectacle. And it is true that that show was much, much smaller than what I saw this week, which was the beautiful, 
spectacular Franco Zeffirelli production of La Boheme, which is still in the repertory there. It's so popular that I don't know if they will ever take it out. Um, another show uh, that they're doing uh, right now is Aida, uh, which is incredibly spectacular. It's it's probably what people think of when they think of grand opera and it is a very traditional huge beautiful production at the Met so I I I really wanted to mention that this is one of the great deals in New York and uh I uh uh, you know I, I don't think there were many tickets available at the performance that I went to but you know you you only need one per person so (laughs) do 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 check that out Michael, um, I assume like uh, Broadway, uh, Tuesday nights uh, are not as demanding uh, ticket-wise, so one could probably saunter in and get one then. Well, you know, it's funny. That has changed over the years. Uh, believe it or not, the most popular night at the Met apparently used to be Mondays. Uh, and I think that that is changing and it's becoming uh, more in, in, in line with Broadway as far as the weekends uh, becoming more popular than the weeknights. Uh, I also hear – I'm not sure if it's 100 percent certain that as of maybe next season that the Med is going to add Sundays. They have not ever done Sundays up until Wow. Time. I didn't so, know yeah, so there again, uh, aligning more with the uh, what has be, become thought of as the uh, the the standard Broadway and off Broadway schedule. Mm. All right, uh, Michael, you got on a train and headed out to the Argyle Theater in Babylon uh, to see Peter and the Starcatcher. Uh, so tell us, what was your experience with Peter and the Starcatcher? Yeah, I know that uh, James saw it. Was it last week? Uh, it was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, uh, and it's running through uh, October 21st at the lovely new Argyle Theater in Babylon Village. Um, Artistic director Evan Pappas, executive producers Mark and Dylan Perlman. This production of Peter and the Starcatcher was directed by Amanda Connors. Uh, And this is a play by – this pronunciation I did look up because I sort of remembered. It's Rick Ellis, uh, even though it's spelled E-L-I-C-E. And a lot of people might say Elise, but that is his name. He – this – play, uh, which is a semi-musical, I would describe it as, um, was originally done off-Broadway at the New York Theatre Workshop in 2011, and so well received that it moved to Broadway in 2012. Um, it, it is, a, 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 I guess, a semi-musical. It only has two or three songs with music by Wayne Barker. And um, I was just told recently by uh, our friend Kevin, Kevin McInerney, with whom I attended this production at the Argyle that uh, the show is licensed by MTI, which I, I know. Yeah. Um, and I could not remember when when it opened originally. I think there was some discussion of why it, it only has two or three songs. I, 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 I have to see if I can research that further and find out if they maybe the plan was to make it more of a full fledged musical. And perhaps they decided that they didn't need that maybe that maybe they had too much plot to get through and uh didn't want to take that much time out for more songs do you happen to know that offhand peter not at all yeah it's it's really it's really interesting um 
how uh, how how there are only those few songs in it, but they do really add to the proceedings when they pop up. So I, I I'm glad that they're there. Um, this was a strong production overall with a strong cast. I did want to single out the, the young fellow who plays Peter and he has the fabulous name of Spencer Bang, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I, 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 you know, not sure if it's his real name or a stage name, but either way, it, it's really great. And he was just really incredibly charming and funny as Peter. Uh, he, uh, I would say he, he, he struck me as a physically a cross between Andrew Garfield and Hunter Foster. Uh, he has a very, very much uh, uh, youthful look and uh, and manner and personality and energy. And I, I'm, I'm not sure where they found him. There's very little in his bio. Uh, I think he's really just starting out. It says, born and raised in Miami, trained in North Carolina, based in New York. I began acting as a child and have continued to act since then. I'm incredibly honored to be playing Peter here at the Argyle. I hope you enjoy the origin of Peter. Uh, because this play is, as I think I failed to mention, uh, a, a sort of a prequel, an imagination of uh, how – Peter Pan came to be Peter Pan. And it is based, by the way, on a novel by Dave Barry and Ridley Pearson. Um, So I'm glad uh, that the Argyle did it because I had not seen it since the original production, which I saw both off and then on Broadway. And uh, they really have a star in the making in Spencer Bang. Uh, I I think it it would be worth it. Uh, The trip out to Babylon Village uh, just to see him, but there is a lot more in the production that's definitely worth your while. Okay, so that is Peter and the Shark Hatcher at the Argyle Theater through October 21st, and there's a link to that in the show notes that tells you more about it. Uh, Peter, you were up at the Greater Boston Stage Company, and you got a chance to see the musical version of The Importance of Being Earnest called Just Being Earnest. So it's about that. Well, uh, many people have tried before to musicalize the importance of being earnest. Uh, mm-hmm. Way back when, there was one called Oh, Earnest! Uh, exclamation point. And uh, the more, most famous one, I would think, would be uh, Earnest in Love, uh, which was done um, in 1960. It opened uh, the day before the Fantastics and did not run nearly as long, needless to say. Lee Pockris, who will always be known as the composer of Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny, Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, uh, wound up writing an score for an Oscar Wilde play, which you wouldn't expect to have happen, with excellent lyrics by Anne Croswell. Uh, so, uh, here we And then Alec Wilder did one that didn't come in, but uh, was done at Williamstown, I believe, back in the 70s, called Nobody's Earnest. So, uh, this has been tried a lot uh, over the years, and this time it's being tried by uh, Paul Gordon, who we know uh, from Jane Eyre some years back. And um, so, he wrote the book, he wrote the lyrics, and he wrote some of the music. You don't usually get that type of credit. Music by Paul Gordon and Jay Gruska. Book and lyrics by Paul Gordon. So you don't, you know, that's that's an odd type of thing. Um, usually uh, people collaborate on book or lyrics more than they collaborate on music. But anyway, 
so be it. So what they've done is set this one in the 60s, which is kind of ironic because 50 years ago, literally, um, I saw a production of Importance of Being Earnest at Brandeis University, which was set in the 60s, where instead of playing the piano at the beginning, um, a guitar was uh, – sitar, sitar. Remember that instrument? If you don't, I'll let your youth be a consolation. But um, there was a lot of sitar music back in the late 60s <laughs> because of Ravi Shankar, uh, who I think was anointed by the Beatles as being a significant – uh, force and music. So, all right, it, you know, I didn't realize at the beginning because of the set, which is simple but very nice, very nice indeed. Uh, I didn't realize at the beginning what they had in mind because I think what they have in mind is a parody um, or at least a reference to Laughin. Laughin was a very popular TV show at the end of the 60s. And they used to have a sequence where um, there was a, a flat wall and people were behind it. They'd open doors um, and they'd just stick out their head and say something funny. And what happens here, even though you don't get the doors <clears throat> and you don't get them opening, of course, is that people are saying famous Oscar Wilde epigrams. That's what they're doing here. And uh, for example, fashion is a form of ugliness so intolerable that we have to alter it every six months. So they took all those famous ones and they put it, and that's how the show essentially starts. So, and then it goes into um, <clears throat> standard stuff is the importance of being earnest. There are a few things that are changed um, in the um, because of uh, the uh, update. For example, um, when um, asked how much uh, he makes um, every year, our hero says $300,000 a year. Uh, that's a lot of money for 1968. And uh, I would think Lady Bracknell would immediately say okay and let her daughter marry him uh, if he's pulling in that. I just did an inflation um, calculator before we started here, and I found out that's uh, $2,200,000 uh, a year in today's money. So that's a pretty good income. Uh, so I think uh, that was a bit of an overstating, frankly, but that's um, needless to say a nitpick. How's the music? Um, very much in the Herman Sherbet's mode, um, very much in the Harper's Bizarre mode. If you don't know Harper's Bizarre, that's literally B-I-Z-A-R-R-E, as opposed to the magazine Harper's Bizarre, um, you can hear them do Anything Goes at the beginning of the movie of Boys in the Band. That was a, a popular hit at the time, and uh, and that's, that's the way much of the music sounds. However, what's really strange is that so much of the music, um, well, more than you'd expect, not so much, but more than you expect is in three-quarter times uh, time, which is really not what you associate with the 60s terribly much. Uh, we do see a character come out and play the ukulele, which reminds us of a character named Tiny Tim. I'm not talking about Dickens at all. Um, again, you have to be of a certain age to know that Tiny Tim was this very bizarre entertainer um, who used to get out there and sing Tiptoe Through the Tulips uh, while playing a ukulele. Um, long, long, long flowing hair and um, a face that would not launch a thousand ships, I assure you, but that's another story. So um, it, it, what does come through here is that um, we see the seeds of the generation gap happening, but this has more to do with Oscar Wilde than it has to do with um, this musical. But it did occur to me that the generation gap uh, sort of started here because um, kids are starting to fight back against their um, – uh, well, at least Gwendolyn is trying to fight back against her mother and uh, have her own way. It's not easy because Lady Bracknell is quite a formidable character, though I've often said – that Lady Bracknell is uh, perhaps only second to the Phantom in perhaps the most famous role in theater history 
that really doesn't have that much to do. Um, Importance of Being Earnest is a three-act play, and she doesn't even appear in the second act at all, at all. And she only has um, a little bit to do. In the, she comes in late in the first act, and she comes late in the third act. So um, it's a role that really um, has more quality than quantity, and, um, and that was the case here. So um, you know, traditionally, um, in this age where we do a lot of doubling, um, we're used to seeing uh, Lane – uh, and Merriman, who play butlers um, in different households, played by the same actor. Well, they've actually um, added uh, Reverend Chausable to uh, the mix here, too. So Will McGarrahan gets to play three roles. When he's Lane, he has a very Ringo Starr type of haircut, uh, which is kind of fun. So, um, so uh, well, all right. So what's, uh, is it any good? Well, you know, the thing is, after you see it, you really want to see importance of being earnest because the best things about it really are the Oscar Wilde play you it's it's very hard to top the music's very amiable and i really liked um the song uh cecily uh, i thought that was really quite nice i liked a song called brothers i thought that was quite nice too and um so uh and there was um a, a third one that i thought was pretty good as well um but yeah, it, 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 it's one of those why musicals, as it always has been. Um, even though Ernest and Love got um, done, strangely enough, um, by that famous uh, Japanese group, the Taka Ratsuka, um, the all-female group, uh, which usually does expansive musicals. And here was this small off-Broadway musical. They had a million butlers and maids uh, on stage. Uh, it, 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 you just can't come up to that material. And I remember Ian Croswell, the lyricist, saying to me, seriously, I didn't know that this play was such a classic. I came home one day in the afternoon after being fired from a job and it was on TV. Can you imagine the importance of bringing Ernest being on daytime TV now? But that, that was TV in the early 50s. And um, I thought, oh, gee, I didn't know this play. This sounds good. Let me investigate it and uh, make a musical out of it. And she really didn't know that it was a classic. She said, if I had known that it was such a classic, I would have never touched it. So... Um, so that, that's that's the same case here, too, as well, I'm sorry to say. So um, even though there are 60-ish backup singers that come in every now and then for no reason just to uh, give a few do-do-do's um, to make the music sound more 60-ish, uh, it comes across as a, a nice – a nice enough afternoon at theater, but um, again, you, you do crave the importance of being earnest itself. That will certainly do it for you. So that's the importance of being earnest. It's uh, playing up in Boston, as we uh, talked about, uh, through October 7th, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. We have a few things that happened into the news. Uh, let me start off with the lighter fare uh, and uh, ask the two of you, have you spotted uh, – well, not have you spotted, but have you seen Jennifer Ashley po uh, Tepper's post – that uh, she was able to stalk Ken Mendelbaum. Oh, really? No. You know, Ken Mendelbaum showed up at Be More Chill, and Jennifer Ashley Tepper saw him uh, saw his name pop up in the in the audience uh, report, and she ran over to the theater to meet him and took a photograph of Ken Mendelbaum in a theater. So that is incredible because I often wonder what has happened with Ken and where he's been and things like that. Uh, one of the great voids when he stops writing uh, no on Broadway. 
No question. His book on Chorus Line, The Musicals of Michael Bennett, is one of the classic books. And needless to say, Not Since Carrie um, is is a tremendous asset. And we all wish that he would write a book called Since Carrie, Mm. dealing with all the flops (laughs) we've had since then. Um, It would really be quite wonderful. But um, we were very lucky when Theatre Week started in 1987 that he was on the scene. And back then, in those pre-internet days, we used to hunger for the news that he would give us every week. You know, it would take a week for us to find out that news, but uh, it was certainly worth hearing. And um, there's no question that um, for whatever reason, why why he stopped doing it, I've always assumed that he stopped doing it because the type of musical theater that he loved and cherished uh, stopped happening. And I, but now that I hear he's at Be More Chill, my, you know, uh, that that doesn't strike me as a Ken Mandelbaum show, but yeah. um, but I, I hope we see more of him and I hope he resumes writing because he really was one of our greatest assets. I have I have run into Ken at the theater once or twice uh, the past few years. I I didn't have the presence of mind to try to snag a photo, (laughs) Uh, but uh, yeah. And oh gosh, Peter, uh, what a great title that would be! Since Carrie, yeah, really. (laughs) I mean, so we we have the title. Let's just give that to Ken and say go. You know, (laughs) you know, uh, is it? uh, I would say that. Uh, Jennifer outlined this in her Facebook post that uh, the book, Not Since Carrie, was a huge motivation for her in in her love of theater. And is it possible that if he didn't write that book, we wouldn't have Jennifer Ashley Tepper on the scene right now, which would change, you know, she's (laughs) so young, she's so young, but she has changed the face of Broadway. Thoroughly agree. You know, Thoroughly 54 agree. Below and her other projects mm. that she's working on. She's working on a million different things. Mm. So I've linked to that post in the uh, show notes, and it's a public post. So even if you're not friends with her on Facebook, you can still see that, the picture of Ken uh, and the picture of her and her story about how she discovered that he was at Be More Chill. And he was very, uh, very... Uh, um, generous with his review of Be More Chill. So uh, I, I too agree that I'm not sure that that's his type of show, but he said very nice things about it. Mm-hmm. And where it went, and where is that? that it's he on Facebook. Uh, oh. He told her in person about that uh, she's got a huge hit on her hands with Be More Chill coming to Broadway. All right. So uh, let's follow up on some other things that uh, we've had Anita Gillette on the show before. And uh, Michael, she's got her show coming up, right? Yes, she's doing uh, her show, her new show called Me and Mr. B, as in Irving Berlin. Uh, is, that's the reference because she famously worked with him on Mr. President on Broadway. Uh, and she is doing her show in the new theater at Birdland this Wednesday through Saturday at 7 p.m. So I'm going to be there, uh, planning to be there on Wednesday. Perhaps I'll see some of you there. She really is one of our great uh, – Musical and non-musical actresses and a, a, a true veteran and, and a real treasure of the theater. So if you can get to see her, I, I think you'll really, really enjoy it. And on uh, Friday evening, late into the evening, we got a frantic press release announcing that Kinky Boots has set a closing date of uh, April 7th, 2019 
which is a very odd date to close, but okay. Well, it's way in the future. It's their uh, anniversary. That's why they will have played six years at that point. Mm -hmm. So that's the uh, real reason. Uh, 2,502 performances, quite a nice run. So, uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, 42nd Street, the revival, did this too, uh, announced a closing way in advance. So um, nobody can have the excuse of, gee, I meant to get there, but I just couldn't. I mean, you really have enough notice now to uh, to get to the um, Hirschfeld Theater and see Kinking Boots if you have not. So uh, they're, they're being very generous about this and you know that's kind of nice uh, closing on the anniversary uh, full circle uh, however you know I won't be a hundred percent surprised if it closes before then because um, those winter months can be really tough and um, so um, don't be surprised if they change that and uh, close in the winter months as opposed to the spring month could be, although I, I, I mean, uh, my understanding is that it's, it's been doing quite well. Uh, and also, I think it is such a popular show that perhaps there will be enough uh, people who want to give it return business and see it again uh, to 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 fill out those those slow months. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is not a prediction by any means. It's it's an observation more than a prediction. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah so, but uh, Certainly uh, shows that have announced closing dates uh, have upped them and uh, closed earlier. So this could be the situation, too, simply because of the winter. And we'll see what kind of winter we have, too. That's not irrelevant. Right. Is what mm, needless to say. Now, also, it has been not not officially announced, but strongly rumored that mm. uh, that the Hirschfeld, rumored. <laughs> the Hirschfeld will be the home of Moulin Rouge. And I had actually heard that um, – a couple of months ago, and it surprised some people who thought maybe a, a bigger theater uh, or, or and or one a, a slightly more centrally located. Although that's not a big deal, um, but I think it it could be really smart producing in in the sense of if it's not in a huge place like, for example, the Broadway or the or the Gershwin, uh, it will be an even hotter ticket and be able to sell even more <laughs> uh, premium price tickets and and make it a an even even greater phenomenon that it might be otherwise. So, uh, you know, we, 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 of course, can never really tell for sure about these things because the one scenario happens and then others don't. Uh, but I think that that's the thinking behind it. And it sounds like it makes a lot of sense to me. So uh, Kinky Boots has been in the high 600s and low 700s of the grosses and, you know, through, you know, June, I guess, the last uh 15, 16 weeks or so. Um, the winter can be brutal, but also you see this sometimes with uh, a long-running show like Cats will announce a closing, then extend. I, I just think that April is a strange time to close because mm -hmm. it seems like there's a ton of business in April. So uh, if it does make it through the cold winter, I would assume that it's going to make it through June. It could make it through June, but also the rumor of Moulin Rouge also, they might want to get into the theater and have and want to do uh, a lot of, they did, when Moulin Rouge played up in, up in the Boston area, they did a lot of uh, construction in the theater. So maybe they need that space in order to be ready for the fall. If in fact Moulin Rouge does end up going into the Al Hirschfeld, um, yeah, um, it is true that uh, <laughs> Moulin Rouge did extend um, uh, on the sides of the theater um, uh, next to the proscenium. There was there was certain things built in that were not um, uh, there, um, and uh, the Colonial was very proud of the fact that you couldn't tell where the Colonial ended and where Moulin Rouge started. <laughs> 
Um, and also there was a passerelle, so that takes mm-hmm. a little bit of time to uh, work. I, I'm not saying they'll have it this time. Who knows? Maybe they'll eliminate that, but that's what's happened there. So where the orchestra usually is, um, is they set up tables, uh, cabaret style, where you could sit. So that may very well happen um, at the Hirschfeld as well. Yes. In fact, someone told me that uh, they they had heard that it, that the theater in – in into which <laughs> Mulumbers Gross would require six months of renovation. That does not sound right. Wow. To me, but mm. uh, that doesn't sound right. But I, 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 I would suspect that if that is where Moulin Rouge is going, which is strongly, strongly rumored mm-hmm. uh, and may well be announced in the next few days, that it uh, that the timing of the closing of Kinky Boots is, has been done w- with that in uh, foremost in mind. Yeah, the uh, the timing is what re- – not so much – I mean, it's strange that it would announce that an April closing right now, uh, especially because April is a weird thing. But Friday night, so late into the night, I, it just seemed like this could have easily been done on a Monday morning or something like that. I just there's – oh. there's a there's a readle column waiting to happen there. Uh-huh. <laughs> And as uh, Peter mentioned in talking about Moulin Rouge and the cabaret style, we should talk about Joe Mastroff. So, Michael, you have some words about Joe. Oh, yeah. Um, Peter was just mentioned the phrase quality as opposed to quantity when, I, when he was talking about er, the Ernest musical. And I think it's fair to say that that applies to Joe Mastroff, uh, who is – will always – always be remembered as the man who wrote the book for two of the greatest musicals ever. She loves me and cabaret. Um, he, uh, he was also uh, a playwright. He wrote straight plays as well, but he, uh, will be remembered forever for those two magnificent works, his, his great contributions to those two magnificent works. Uh, he also wrote, um, the book for the Kander and Ebb musical, 70 Girls, 70, which is not as well known, but uh, musical aficionados know him for that. And uh, really, you, you, one cannot praise the books of Cabaret or She Loves Me Too Highly. They, they have um, endured and will forever. Uh, I thought it would be nice uh, as our musical moment for our lead out today uh, to do – uh, a song that uh, that is the finale of She Loves Me. And, and uh, because that original cast album, uh, which famously was on two LPs originally, uh, the fact that it was on two LPs allowed for the inclusion of a, a, a fair amount of dialogue, uh, which is not always the case, and especially in that era. So I thought it would be good to... Uh, use the the final uh track or actually the penultimate track uh no i guess it is the final track i'm sorry uh, from the uh cast album which begins with uh dialogue by joe masteroff uh as delivered by daniel massey and barbara cook in the roles of george and amalia and then it goes into uh, a, a beautiful brief reprise of the song Dear friend, uh, and then actually the that the same track includes the what is the curtain call music for mm-hmm. She Loves Me. So I um, we thought we would 
use that as our tribute to Joe. And I'd love, uh, of course, to hear uh, to hear Peter and James's thoughts on on this really great artist of the theater. Well, at least uh, he lived to 98. And I mean, that's uh, which of us wouldn't sign a paper today saying, OK, I'll take 98. Uh, so one has to appreciate that. But I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking of what um, Howard Marin told me. Now, Howard Marin is a composer and he worked with Joe on uh, Waltz of the Torio's musical, which was called Paramore and on a Portrait of Jenny musical. Um, so uh, they worked together and they, they stayed great friends as time went on. And last time I saw Howard, he said to me, you know, Joe says, you know, you know, here I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really old now and I think I'm really ready to go. Mm. But I am curious how Cabaret grossed on the road this week. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's the way I'll remember Joe Masteroff, who was always very nice to me uh, every time I ran into him. And uh, I am grateful that uh, he uh, did Cabaret. And, you know, I mean, again, this was a show that came out of the blue. Um, nobody thought anything was going to happen with Cabaret, given the fact that Kendra and Abbott had written one show that was a flop, given the fact that Harold Prince had written um, – uh, I'm sorry, had directed musicals that were only failures, uh, given the fact that Joe Masteroff had written the book She Loves Me, which at that point in time was considered a failure more than a masterpiece. Uh, it took a while for people to say, you know, this really is a very good show. Um, the critics were good to it, I'll grant you, but audiences weren't. So so really, um, Hal Prince took a big chance, uh, not only with Candoreb, but also with Joe Masteroff, who hadn't had uh, any type of real success up till that point. And, uh, and yet he certainly uh, knew what to do, uh, taking from I Am a Camera, taking from the Berlin stories, also having to be very careful in the 60s not to uh, really get down to brass tacks when it came to what happened uh, with Cliff's um, sexuality. So um, it was a very skillful book, needless to say, and um, he certainly uh, was there to do the revisions both in 87 and 98. So um, he, he moved along with the times there as well. So yes, um, a very nice man, a very uh, great writer, and of course, um, it's hard to say, you know, that uh, we, we, we were surprised. Um, nobody can be surprised when anybody reaches the 90s that, um, that the end is in sight. But we're very, very glad that uh, he was around as long as he was. I was thinking that he uh, one could say he had bad luck in in the sense that uh, She Loves Me was never made into a, a Hollywood film. Uh it it was going to be. I think it yeah. came pretty close. It was yeah. at one point all but announced with Julie Andrews and I think Dick Van Dyke. That's right. That's right. Um, but so so no film of that exists. And then uh, the film of Cabaret uses a completely different script by mm-hmm. – uh, uh, well, credited Jay, to Jay, Jay Press and Allen, yeah. Jay Press and Allen, uh, apparently heavily uh, doctored and worked on by Hugh Wheeler. Uh, but so, and and the script of the film is 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 quite wonderful, but it's mm-hmm. it's very different from mm-hmm. that of mm-hmm. the stage show. Uh, so I am glad that we have seen and will continue to see stage revivals of both of those works to keep Joe's Joe's uh, great talent alive forever and ever. Mm-hmm. I'm looking back at his IBDB. His first show uh, is the Prescott proposals where he was a performer mm-hmm. in the ensemble. Uh, yeah, that's first... a 
Lindsay Krauss uh, play, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then next is The Warm Peninsula, which uh, seems to be the first play he wrote uh, yeah. that was appeared on, on Broadway. So, uh, yeah, I uh, did it. And, mm. and then he went from She Loves Me to Cabaret. Could you imagine such a mm-hmm. dramatic change from such a joyful musical, such a dark, <laughs> dark thing? Especially uh, back then, it was dark. And, you know, again, credit to Hell Prince. You know, I mean, here he was. Uh, again, She Loves Me was considered a failure. It didn't make its money back, needless to say. It never does, frankly. And uh, and yet he said, you're my man. You're the one who's going to write the book to uh, to Cabaret, or Welcome to Berlin, as was originally called. Uh, so, yeah, really, um, <laughs> it's impossible not to recognize Hell Prince at this moment in time, too, as being uh, somebody who has faith in people, no matter what had happened on Broadway previously. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and then after Cabaret, 70 Girls, 70. Yeah. There it is. It does get done every now and then. Uh, and uh, it's, it, it, it has a fine score. And uh, and I, I guess the concept of that one, uh, are we in a theater? Are we not in a theater? Uh, are these people performers? Uh, is that what they're doing? Or are they real uh, old people? And I, I understand the decision to make them performers because you don't like the idea of old people stealing, shoplifting, uh, raiding stores, that type of thing. And I think that's why um, – I'm not sure if Joe Masteroff came up with the idea to make them actors pretending to be these thieves. But um, uh, if if he did, I, I understand the motivation behind that. I truly do. Okay, so before we leave you with one of my favorite songs of all musical theater, let's get on to trivia. Uh, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I did ask a trick question, I have to admit, because uh, I said, what was the name of the Broadway musical that Sally Ross did at the Schubert Theater? Well, there's no such person as Sally Ross, at least nobody who played the Schubert Theater. But uh, what I was doing was referencing a 1981 movie called The Fan uh, by Bob Randall, based on his uh, novel of a few years earlier, an epistolary novel, by the way. So she's an actress who was played by Lauren Bacall, who's doing her first musical, Never Say Never, at the Schubert. Uh, Marvin Hamlish and the aforementioned Tim Rice wrote the songs, and I say they're pretty good ones, by the way. Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, followed by John Moss, Alex Lauer, Jack Leshner. Well, you know, I complained the week before the only women got the answer, and this week the men rallied. So we'll look forward to hearing to children next week. You know, um, it's their turn. And the question becomes, the end sequence of 1776 mentions all 13 of the original colonies. But it's not a real song, is it? What actual song, with a beginning, middle, and end, from the same decade in which 1776 was produced, indeed does mention all 13? Okay. So if you are a history teacher or a child who knows this answer, email us at triviabroaderradio.com, and we'll let you know if you are on the right track. Of course, anybody can answer. So on behalf of uh, Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. You sounded irresistible, Miss Polish. As a matter of fact, I remember thinking that's the kind of girl I could almost fall in love with. But you never said anything. How could I? I knew how you felt about me. Oh, but you didn't, Mr. Novak. Really, you didn't. Because I was attracted to you. More than attracted. What a shame we never spoke up. 
I am so sorry about last night. It was a nightmare in every way. But together you and I will laugh at last night someday. Dear friend, it's really true then. It's what I friend i had to tell you i couldn't stand it until you knew two weeks i was so anxious i was so tainted i didn't i wanted you to know i thought you might have guessed the truth i couldn't wait another 